hello and welcome to the Right for Your Life podcast. My name is Ian Broom. And my name is Donna Sorensen. Two facts to start the show with. Yeah. Got another fact. Yes. This week, everybody, I was in a national newspaper. Well, you didn't mess about with getting that off your chest, did you? <laughs> well, come on. I mean, that's that's a big thing for me. I just thought I'd better get it out there quickly because um, it's nonsense. and It's absolute nonsense, but I wanted to say it. So I'll just say it, it was that ridiculous selfie picture that I took with the Danish Prime Minister. It got taken up in the national news here because she was travelling budget. Um, uh, and it was all just very exciting. And I just, I wanted to mention it also because we've been talking about clout score last week. And uh, I was watching my own clout score very intently after that to see whether it would change, which was all very exciting. Um, and it did change, but not in a life, like, you know, not, well, I was going to say not in a life-changing way. You know what I mean? The earth didn't move. So are we are we going to have a conversation about clout scores in, with some kind of seriousness? Absolutely not. But did, <laughs> did, did did so did you so what so explain to the listeners what happened because they if someone's listening for the first time they've probably already switched off. But oh, it, no, what are you joking with a start like that about like national news and stuff? No, they'll be really interested. <laughs> no. no, I know it's it's all very silly, but um it was just that picture that i snapped with the danish prime minister why, 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 i've already explained it what do you want me to say more than that no nothing so you, so what happened so you, so the mis- this is the mystery for me here is how so you take you take a selfie with the danish prime minister who happens to be on the same flight as you and yes. she's she's very accommodating all good yeah. you post yeah. it onto your own personal facebook uh, page no, and- yeah and twitter it was twitter specifically and i uh, mentioned easyjet in it right and it was retweeted by EasyJet in Denmark. Okay. And so I think because of that, um, a freelance journalist who worked for the newspaper here in Denmark called Extrabladet, they they saw it and they just tweeted me and said, oh, that's that's a very nice picture. Um, I'm thinking about doing a little piece on, hello, she's called Travelling on Budget. Can I just ask where you were flying? That's all that happened. I just told him which route it was. Next day... It's in the newspaper, and they've embedded my my tweet um, so that the photos is in. It's, it was only obviously in the online version of the newspaper, but um, but that's what happened. So it was all um, quite embarrassing. Also, because our communications director <laughs> emailed it to me and said, "Have you seen this?" And I said, "No." But um, it, the reason it was a big thing for me, Ian, was because in the newspaper it quoted me and it said. In Danish, though, it said, Donna Sorensen, um, a local a resident um, poet and writer. And that was the first time in my life when I was like, you know what? That's actually what I am. And when I get quoted in the newspaper, that's what people say about me. And it was just such a wonderful feeling. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. Did they? Not um, any any other reason, just that specific thing. Did they get that information from your Twitter profile? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Isn't it interesting? I mean, that's fantastic, and you know, congratulations. Oh yes, thanks. Um, isn't it interesting how um, an, an occupation like journalist, how you can have a journalist who, for example, works on the front line in, say, Afghanistan or maybe Ukraine or maybe Syria, and they're there living with the people who are going through these incredible 
momentous, horrifying at times um, uh, experiences and situations and document, documenting sort of parts of history that are so vital and important to our understanding of what's taking place in the world around us. And these people are just a certain kind of journalist. And then, and then we have uh, people who troll Twitter feeds and um, look out for interesting stories about selfies. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, it wasn't the selfie that was the story. The story was the fact that the Prime Minister of Denmark is travelling on EasyJet when other politicians in this country are travelling first class and are getting heavily criticised for it. So I totally agree with you, but there was a political motivation for the story. It's pretty hard-hitting politics, actually. <laughs> now that you... Now that well, you... think about in, over in the UK last year, I mean all of the stuff that was going on about MPs' expenses. I mean, people, were, I'm sure, were just going out to buy the newspaper every day to say, oh, look what Kari bought. I mean, that's literally what it was non-stop, wasn't it? Do you remember? It was, yeah. It was uh, crazy times. So I, I, I don't envy journalists. I wouldn't like to be a journalist. I don't know whether you have ever considered it as a, a writing career. I did, actually, mainly because I knew that I didn't, I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher and I kind of thought, well, I have an English degree. What on earth else am I going to do? And, um, and, and so I, I, I kind of thought that I might end up being one just by default. But it never really, it's never really appealed to me in the way that I think it perhaps should um but um but you know it's been a it's been a crazy week it's been a crazy week hasn't it for uh, for all kinds of things it has and um maybe you should just update our, our listeners on on what you guys um in your household i mean have been doing this week it's been um insane week for you i don't want to go into too much detail about what's going on in the household but um yeah I want, you, people may have noticed that i've not posted anything to really to twitter at all apart from some retweets about the uh, EU elections, which I don't want to go into because they're too upsetting. Um, and uh, the blog's been very quiet and, 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 and stuff like that. So I just thought I, I would explain, partly because also the I've had to cancel the workshop that I was planning to do this weekend. I don't think anyone who listens has actually uh, had, had uh, bought a ticket or a place. But nevertheless, that's going to be cancelled. Everything's fine, don't panic. I'm building this up, but um, uh, my wife, who I think you would prefer to call your sister, um, has had uh, meningitis. I'll stick to that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably for the best. <laughs> she's um, she's had meningitis and had a, a rough old 10 days or so. So this was going on when we recorded last week. I was kind of at the beginning of the process of having a wife with meningitis whilst trying to manage two 20-month-old children as well. But um, it got worse. It got, it got quite a bit worse after that podcast recording last week. But uh, things have picked up now, and she's uh, hopefully on the mend. But it's quite stressful, and there's not been much writing going on, or preparing mm. for podcasts, or blogging, or tweeting. Just basically wife, children, finding a way to go to work, or to do work and get paid. It's amazing how quickly the things that you think are important suddenly just float away very quickly. They don't float away, they just absolutely leg it in the opposite direction as soon as things that are actually genuinely important um, come to your attention. I know. I saw that thing about perspective, eh? and I was, I was I thought that this week as well. Um, just how, you know, you've got so many things that you want to do and sometimes you can't do any of it 
And after that, you realize, well, actually, that's okay. <laughs> yes. If you can't do it, you can't do it. Yeah, well, I've long said that. I mean, I've I've kind of been beating that drum for, for years, the idea that we've, we've, we've talked about this so much, but the whole writer's rights idea, you know, if someone said that to me this week, I may have punched them in the chin or something like that <laughs> you know yeah. you're not a real writer you're not doing much writing at the moment i may have, i may have exploded if someone would have said to me those words this week but um but yes but it just it does tie in with one of our topics so that's what's happening this things have been a, a touch tough but um it's you know it's going to be fine um but this ties in a little bit with what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about this now or later i can't quite remember but this idea of of, of what we do with our time um and and kind of how we should we just talk about it now is it your article or is it this oh, i believe that was the listeners question listeners, let's do the listeners question first let's just do it <gasps> really yeah come on let's do it we can mix this up it's our show listeners question. oh no i've changed my mind no you can't <laughs> <laughs> i can't suck that back out of the the ether that's gone now okay it so will forever be there the jingle is there so we've got to talk about it and i've got to just find it now oh wasn't even ready for that. Here we go. Um, this was Rob Boone on Twitter. Hi, Rob. Um, and it was actually last week, but um, we kind of had a, a little backward and forward on Twitter about it. He asked how to write personal projects when you're burnt out on client projects. And yes, we have touched on this before. Um, but I was actually quite interested in that this week because I'd had this epiphany where I worked so much in the evenings recently on this massive project that I was just like so this is you're, you're talking about a project for your day job you're working during my the, day job yeah my writing day job it 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 exploded and um cascaded over into my my own private hours in the evening and um and I was the first night when I didn't have to work, I was like, oh, that's weird. What am I going to do? I know, I'm just going to I'm gonna lie in the bed and watch Modern Family. And then I was lying there thinking, you know what, this is insane. I have to stop enjoying writing my poetry and I have to start treating it like a job because if I can spend three months working in the evenings on a project that, that is not my own passion, then I, I just have to start looking at, at my writing like that. So that's, that's what I uh, replied to. To Rob and he said um, I've carved out 9 to 10 p.m. to do just that was advised to take a short walk just before to get the juices flowing um, which sounds like quite a nice idea I haven't done that I'm sure people go running and things as well what about you Ian how do you come at that well uh, this is a piece of advice that's long been uh, familiar with uh, a lot of writers I think the idea that you need to start you need to treat your writing like a job your creative writing even though for almost all of us it isn't a job in the sense that we get paid enough for it to be our full-time occupation but um, uh, if you treat it like a job the idea is that it will become a habit and once you're in that habit then you will get more done and you will finish more books and all that kind of thing and of course this is what most of the particularly successful self-publishers do they treat they don't just treat the writing like a job they actually treat the entire thing like a business so whereas I'm still sort of desperately clinging on to the notion that good writing is art actually you know maybe there is a better argument that says it's actually a business if you want to make money from it and you want to get more done and you want to turn it into something that's um, uh, uh, going to pay its way 
So the idea of treating it like a job is is a very good piece of advice. It isn't always that easy. It really isn't. Um, but if I think back to when I was really in the thick of writing my novel, A.S. for Angelica, I did treat it like a job. I, and in, in the sense that I put it above everything else. And again, we've talked about sacrifice before on the podcast and I've written about it on the blog. But I put I put everything in front of that novel at times. The only thing that wasn't in front of the novel for periods of time was my day job because I had to go because we had to put you know food on the table, so to speak. But I would get home from work, I would eat, and then I would sit for five, six hours in the evening and I would write the novel. And I would do that for months on end. And actually, what tended to happen was that I would get to a certain deadline or I would reach a certain word count or there was a, you know, maybe a, there was a point where I had to send it off to my agent or my tutor or whatever it might be. And then I would kind of hit a bit of a wall. I'd kind of hit that deadline and then I would find myself not doing anything for three or four months because I was waiting for feedback and I just thought I've completely, completely gone over the top with this, treating it like a job business. Um, so actually there needs to be somewhere in between, I think, and the idea of dedicating. So let's just assume, like most people, you have um, a, a, a day job, a nine to five job, and let's throw in a couple of kids as well. Can you still try and find, let's say an hour, I think that's a pretty good guide, an hour. You can get a decent amount of work done in an hour. So can you set an hour aside uh, amongst all those other things to write? And um, and I agree, I think if you can do that and you can get into that habit, then that is probably more valuable than, you know, just blitzing it for five hours and then struggling with other parts of your life and as you know get being tired for work for example and um or or, um or or doing what i did burning out and then struggling to do anything for a while after that Mm. yeah i seem to remember a while back we spoke about this and we talked about um finding your egyptian dentist do you remember i do remember you say i think that's the name (laughs) of the show i don't know i don't remember which episode it was no it was it was quite a while back but uh yeah that the dentist in Egypt that managed to to fit it all in. It was quite bizarre. But I, I, I always remember him. I think for me it's this this thing about enjoyment that I when I was writing my first collection, I'm mean, right back at the start, I was I was just so into it that that I didn't even have to worry about whether I would prioritise it. I didn't have as many things to do in my life at that time. And I, I do think this is when we're talking about this, we're really talking for people who have a lot of things to juggle because I do happen to know a lot of people that have a lot of time. I mean, I'm thinking actually when I lived in Ireland, I met a lot of writers who were either retired or were in between jobs or, you know, just finishing studying and they seem to have so much time and, you know, they were not just writing poetry, but they were totally immersed in that world. And I can still see it now. I've left Ireland, obviously, but I can see it on Facebook that those are still the people that are sharing, you know, interesting articles about poetry, you know, sometimes putting their own poetry up, they're doing readings. And I can't help being a little bit envious um, of it. And just thinking, oh, you know, it's great saying that you'll treat your writing like a job. But Let's face it, there are some people who are just, you know, lucky enough to to be able to enjoy it and do it because they love it and do it whenever they have the time and they have lots of time. I think that some people, and I tentatively include myself in this, have um, uh, have a problem or are the victims of just having too many 
things that they're interested in. There's a, there's a an element of being a, a jack of all, if not trades, then interests. And and I I'm completely uh, with you on this. I do know lots of people who they may they may not have been, they're, they're not published authors. They're not they're not trying to you know pursue the self publishing route either. They're just kind of they're not even making money out of their writing actually they're just people who are really immersed in the community in Sheffield uh, the kind of writing community and Mm. are doing events or going you know either going to events or or performing at events or you know kind of poetry spoken word nights and they just always seem to be on specific you know the local Facebook pages for events and they just seem completely immersed in the writing world and um, they also seem to me to be the same people who don't have a huge, um, for example, they're not, they're clearly not that interested, uh, in, in something like Twitter, for example, um, yes. or, or, um, or they don't seem to post an awful lot on Facebook apart from writing related things. Writing related things. Yes. Um, and, and 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 I'm not like that, and it's not just you know they they are very sort of very narrow examples, but if I think of myself and I think of the kind of interests I have in, for example, technology, and and kind of uh, design, and and even even just sport and politics. So I've read loads of articles in the last week on the EU. Um, uh, vote and everything that's been going on in the EU and I'm not I have no kind of politics background um, I'm not massively knowledgeable in the area but but the older I've become I've become really interested in the way that it's reported partly because of what I'm working on for my second novel actually but just you know the media and the way it works and that kind of thing but but these are other kind of interests. And I'm not saying those other people that I've just referred to don't have any other interests or aren't bothered about the news. But I can feel myself sometimes, especially with the design and the tech and the tech stuff. You know, I listen to tech podcasts probably more than I listen to writing podcasts. And it's not like I'm a developer or anything. I guess I used to work in the design industry and I now run my own business vaguely related to it. But I'm just interested in all these different things. and And sometimes to get anywhere with one particular thing, you do have to shut all the other stuff out and just go, you know what, I am interested in that stuff, but it will still be there in six months' time. At the moment, I just need to really focus. And actually, I've I've had a bit of an epiphany over the last two weeks too, and it's not just the whole thing of, you know, if you don't use Twitter or you don't blog or whatever, then, you know, you find that, oh, it turns out that nothing bad happens. I mean, that is true. But actually, I've started to think a lot more about it uh, about how I'm, how I kind of, I don't know what I do with my time, and mm-hmm. and how much of it I spend not writing. Partly because I've always thought that those other things were really valuable. I've always thought that you know I've got to, got to keep the blog going. I've got to keep putting something on Twitter just because you know. But if I don't, then if I don't, then you know I've got a book to sell, so I've got to try and promote Ace Frangelica. But the reality is, I've just I've recently found. That book is gone. That's that book was two years ago now that that came out, almost two years ago, and it's 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 gone. It exists, and lots of people have read it, and it's and you know, it's not gone in the sense that it's disappeared completely. But in terms of what I can really do to sell it to more people, there isn't much anymore. It's had its time. It's passed, and that was a bit of an epiphany for me as I realised 
mm-hmm. uh, I just realized these things. I'm, I'm in the process of realizing them. And just, you know, I think it's, I don't know. I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, I think. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, uh, but it, you know, that's, that's, it's kind of like letting something go. Then saying, okay, now I, I can, I can fully focus on the next, the next novel. Well, it's also what do I want to be known for? That's my other thing. And I think this is important. So uh, this is one of the things I was going to talk about, actually, in my workshop masterclass thing that I was supposed to do this weekend. It's about which was about building an online platform as a writer. And I think if I had my time again, which is very easy to say, I probably wouldn't write a blog about writing, or it certainly wouldn't be just about writing, which mine was for a couple of years. Because as many people are realizing and as i've said before on the podcast writers don't tend to buy other writers work and that's fine that's fair enough what i should have been doing was i think and what i'm probably going to going to do more of is is do more writing do more actual fiction put more stuff out there that becomes that's that so that's my legacy like i don't want people to think of me as ian Bruin, the bloke who does the podcast i do want <gasps> i do <laughs> i do want people to think, to think of me as that um but i'd prefer if they said oh novelist ian Broom." you know it's, the guy that won the booker <laughs> well that would be ideal <laughs> yeah absolutely um yes yeah well i mean we're all trying aren't we very trying very trying. <laughs> um, <coughs> talking about podcasts, I would um, like to recommend a couple quickly, actually, uh, of writing podcasts, because you said that you don't listen to many writing podcasts. No, I, I, you... do listen to, I do listen to to three or four, but there's only so many hours oh in the day. Oh my God, three and four? Wow. Three or four. Well, not, not, not uh, religiously, so to speak. But, uh, I was going to say, I've, I've only got two. I, I do, I'm a terrible sucker for the film program but with when it's time that I just like to to immerse myself in the world of poetry I've started listening to poetry please I think I might have mentioned poetry please before on on this podcast it's uh, Roger McGough have I have, do you remember it Ian have I mentioned it to you before? it doesn't ring a bell no um so they kind of um they pick a poet each week and people write in and request for uh, certain poems by that poet to be read on air. Um, so it's really nice exploration of a poet's life and influences in their poetry. Um, so that's quite nice every so often to have a listen to that. Um, the reason I was going to mention it this week is because they um, they were recording at the national competition um, for reciting poetry by heart. It's uh, for school children and college children. It's called Poetry by Heart. Um, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently, actually, about the fact that I don't actually think I can recite any poetry by heart. And I feel like our parents' generation can do a lot of that. And I'm sure they were forced to do it at school. And they would say, you know, well, you could discuss whether that's a good or a bad thing. But I've always felt a little bit like I was lacking something about the fact that I couldn't just suddenly sit there and say, you know, well, I can actually recite a little bit of the Jabberwocky <laughs> by Lewis Carroll. That's quite bizarre. That's because uh, when I was at primary school, we learnt it and um, we just moved into a new school building and our teacher wrote the first bit of it up on the, um, the new whiteboard, which was brand new back in the whiteboards. And there was something wrong with that whiteboard and that first sentence never rubbed off the whiteboard. So do you remember the whiteboards used to used to scroll them round so you could get a new a fresh 
a fresh bit of the board to write on. So not a, not one of these new interactive whiteboards. Not a new interactive whiteboards. Back when whiteboards were the were the thing. Every time it came round, there was the first line of the Jabberwocky on the whiteboard for the whole... I mean, I guess I must have been in that classroom for a couple of years. Was I think it? that's why I remember. I, I imagine that is the way you remember. What is the first line of Jabberwocky? "'Twas brillig, and the slivy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogroves, and the momraths outgrabe." Tremendous. <laughs> so that, I think that's the only one I can do, and... I, I'm I'm a bit sad about that. I don't know whether you have any pieces that you can recite off by heart and whether you think it's important or not to be able to do it. I wandered lonely as a cloud. <laughs> um, One of no, my dad's favourites. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't know a lot of uh, stuff by heart, to be honest, but having run my own spoken word night for two years, I saw lots of people, you know, and been to lots of events, I've seen people who've read from a sheet and I've seen people who've performed by heart and there is no contest. If you can learn your poem, you can learn your, your whatever it is, whatever your thing is, and just perform it, then it's amazing. It can be absolutely amazing. It's just it's just a different... To me, it's a kind of a different... It's a different level of commitment, but it also it's just... It can, it's so much better if you... You just look like a proper poet, don't you think? That's so funny. I think I'm quite a traditionalist because I, I mean, I was, I know some of my poems off by heart, obviously, but I would, when I was performing them, I would always have the paper and I would always occasionally glance at the paper, but I would be looking at engaging the audience as well, because I feel like there's something more, um, like you can trust a poet more if they feel, if you feel like they're bringing something off out of the paper. I know that sounds really weird, but it's, I think there's a big difference between performance poetry and and poetry way that you would seal into a collection like that that's that you you would read but I don't know I mean we, you, there's absolutely incredible performance poets out there and when I when I watch them I feel like it's, it's it is a slightly a different thing but yeah I mean I went to I went to a, a, a night recently in Sheffield and and, and it was all perf- what you would call performance poetry and it was none of it was read with a piece of paper and I just, I just thought it was fantastic. I just thought it was, you know, such a different experience. I know what you mean. I guess if it's if it's a poem that's kind of written for publication as much as it's written for an audience, um, uh, you know, a physical audience that's right there in front of you, then perhaps that's, perhaps you know, there's an element of, of um, you know, perhaps there's a difference in some way. But but I still don't see why knowing it off by heart would affect either the performance or what it's like when it's published surely if you're reading something out then all it really needs to do is is uh, transmit to the audience it doesn't really matter what it looks like on your bit of paper that you're holding no absolutely not but i feel like that I, then you can kind of say this is i'm bringing this out of the page you know this 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 thing that i'm reading is here you know it this the way that it was first conceived and the way that it should be seen is is as i have it in my hand is it the way that it should be seen or is it the way that it should be heard though but when you perform it, well, it's both, though, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're almost you're, you're giving them it's like clues, isn't it? That you're, you're giving them the whole package, especially if you published a collection. You're saying, here's a poem. This is how I this is what it means. I'm going to give you all of the context of it, all the drama. And then you can go and get it and and, and look at the words and find them for yourself. 
I don't know. I, to be honest, I wasn't even really thinking about kind of my own poetry or anything like that. I was really thinking about kind of classic poetry and the fact that that it always seems to be that the older generation, the generation that's older than us, can just kind of sit down and say, Do you, know, you know, they could just pull stuff out of their... I don't know what I was going to say. I was just going to say bottom, and I don't know why. I didn't mean bottom. They could just pull something out of their hat and start reciting, you know, some kind of classic poetry that you're just like, oh, I can't do that. I must be inadequate. Yeah, I know what you mean. Perhaps it's perhaps it's a generational thing, and the way that we were test, we, the way that we were tested, and kids are tested today is perhaps different to the way that they were taught and tested the generations yeah. before. Absolutely, and I I certainly have read poems that I've adored, and I thought I I really want to remember that particular part of it. You know, I want to remember that image or the way that that line sounded. But not because I want to sit and memorise the whole poem to perform when I'm drunk at parties. But um, it was interesting that on the on the Poetry Please podcast, they were saying, you know, and Andrew Motion, the former Poet Laureate, was talking about the fact that he felt it was a real dying art as well. Mm. What's, um, what's, so, the, uh, what's the other podcast that you listen to? <clears throat> the other podcast that I was going to listen to, and that I was going to listen to, that I do listen to, that I was going to uh, tell people about, um, is the, uh, it's made by the Poetry Foundation and um, the magazine Poetry just called poetry <coughs> excuse me um they do a, a monthly podcast every time in the, the magazine the physical uh, poetry magazine is published uh where they highlight some of the poets in the issue um and the greater kind of um poetry scene it's in america and don share the editor of a poetry magazine and Lindsay garbett who is the assistant editor they do the, the podcast together um and I've really enjoyed it because I think also it's, you know, the other side of the Atlantic, it's, you feel like it's a slightly different perspective. And when they're sitting talking, you are getting a different history of poetry. And I really like that. And I've heard some incredible new poets on there. So I would, I would recommend it. But one thing I was going to comment on about this podcast relates to the next thing that we were potentially going to talk about, or maybe briefly, I'm not really sure how much time we've got left Ian today. We've got about 15 minutes or so. All right, great. Um, they, um, in the last issue, in the May issue, aside of um, having poets reading their own work, they had a poet on um, called Michael Robbins, who um, is also a critic. Or he is, he is somebody who writes on poetry and the history of poetry. Um, I guess you could call him a scholar. I'm not sure whether he would call himself a scholar. I don't know. Um and he was talking about a poet called James Hickey and it was fascinating listening to this guy talking because I, I when he finished, I thought, who were you talking to? It was really bizarre because he was um, talking about this guy's life, James Hickey's life. And he was talking about his poetry and how it compared to other writers. And he said that he felt his poetry was a bit like Cormac McCarthy's Blood, Merillion, Blood Meridian. Now, I'm actually reading that book at the moment. And so I sat up and I was like, oh, that'll be interesting. But it was the, the thing he said next, Ian. I'm just going to quote what he said. Do you mind if I quote? I don't, I don't mind. I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, in, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay, get this. So this guy, when he was talking about this poet, he said it reminded him of, of um, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And then he said... 
But, you know, I know it's a cliche to invoke Blood Meridian in a discussion about a sustained diabolical register. <laughs> That's what he said. And I just thought... Yeah, no, hang on, so give us that again. <laughs> he said that it was a cliche to invoke Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian in a discussion about a sustained diabolical register. That's what he said. Interesting. Now, Blood Meridian is a really horrific novel. It is extremely intense. It is diabolical the whole way through. As a reader, I'm reading that book right now. I'm happy that I've realised that it is completely diabolical. And when he said it was a cliché to, to talk about the fact that this book was, you know, diabolical, I was just thinking, oh, my God, like, who are you talking to? I mean, that's... Are you just talking to other scholars of American literature? Because that, that to me, put a massive distance between me and this guy immediately. I don't know whether you would have felt the same if you'd heard him say that to you. Well, who is this guy again? <laughs> he's, he's a poet, but he's also, he's written a lot of books and critical theories, I'm sure, about, about different poets' work and things like that. Um, and I just thought, blimey, I cannot believe that there's been that much discourse about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian that it would be a cliche to talk about that. And the fact that he said it's a cliche makes me think, oh, honestly, what are you going on about? And I, it made me think about people that, that in that kind of world, people that write about poetry and write about writing and who they are doing that for, you know? Well, there is, this is an interesting point. And I hadn't, when we said we were going to talk about this, I hadn't considered this, this comparison but I just spent over a year working in a university, in a research department in a university. And, and there were some very nice people, nothing personal here with the woman I'm about to say. But having personally worked in a commercial environment for six and a half years previously, the academic environment, it seemed to me, certainly the areas where I, that I was involved with um, or saw, were not behind, but just entirely unaware of the reality of of for example um um of of working in a commercial design environment or in a commercial company and there is and uh, there is this uh, i guess the the comparison here is that there is there is discourse about something so there is talking about writing there is talking about a specific uh a book or uh, or whether something's cliche and then there is then there is a kind of another side of things where it's people who actually it's readers like proper readers who actually just want to read their book and and, and kind of post review on Amazon and, and Goodreads. It's kind of almost like there is this highbrow version of of events going on, which is fine, by the way. I mean, I did, I I studied literary uh, criticism and literary theory at university. I think it's okay for that discourse to kind of be kind of happening. But in terms of the reality of what people think about a book, it's entirely at odds. The two things are entirely at odds. Someone's talking about, you, I, don't, I can't even remember what it was, but talking about cliches and registers and all that kind of thing is a million miles away from someone just posting a three-line review on Amazon. And I wonder which one is most important to, for example, publishers these days, or self-publishers, or any kind of author which 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 uh which area of discussion do they really care about these days i suspect mm. it's the popular one as opposed to the kind of literary 
discussion that takes place in another, seemingly another realm. Absolutely. I, I would say, at a guess, that it's, it's the popular discourse that publishers are after. And for the writer, it's probably more the, uh, the highbrow because they, you want to be respected by your peers or people that, you know, well, know I, something about it. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Well, why do you want to win the Booker Prize? I want to win the Booker Prize because I would like... There is more than one reason why I'd like to win the Booker Prize. And it brings the two of these things together. First of all, I'd like to win the Booker Prize because you're right, it's recognition, isn't it, that it's a good book. And mm. if you win the Booker Prize, you go down in history as a winner of the Booker Prize. But yeah. at the same time, let's not beat around the old bush here. You sell thousands more copies than you would have done if you hadn't won the Booker Prize. And you get more chance to write a second novel and have it published and have yeah. a better deal for your second book. You know, there is a commercial element to any award, no matter how... Um, uh, important or highbrow or whatever the right phrase is it might be absolutely but I think there's still you know you could it's not necessarily reviewers in broadsheet newspapers as against people that are reviewing books on blogs for example that we're talking about here because I mean you know you have exceptionally good reviewers in, on both of those platforms but this is this is about people that you respect and people who know what they're talking about. So if you say, you know, you want somebody who knows something about what they're talking about to say that they like what you're doing, because, not just not just because that, that makes you feel good, but because people trust that and they do listen to that and that will impact more people than just somebody who's read the book writing it and saying, I really like your book, which is lovely and you want that to happen too. But are you telling me that you would like that as much as you would like say, for example, the book review at The Guardian that week? The book review at The Guardian is much closer, I think, to someone writing a five-star review or, or any five-star review on Amazon than, than, than they are someone writing an academic text, like a lit piece of literary theory. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's true. That is true. I mean, so I, I guess what we're talking about here is that the... the, the that there are, there are, there's three different worlds. There's just people that are reading, there's people that are reviewing, and there's people that are involved in critical theory. I think, yeah, I, I, that sounds fair enough to me. But I would personally, <laughs> uh, the, the idea of, of um, and you said this, that the idea that there is someone, that because that they, they look at, because someone who's looking at it from a, kind of a critical literally i don't know what the right phrase is but looking at it as a piece of or writing a piece of literary criticism that they somehow know what they're talking about in a way more than someone who's just writing a review on amazon so for example my the review on amazon that i always i always like to go back and look at actually it's not on amazon i've got that's a different place on goodreads Someone wrote a review of mine, a book, who said, this is the most depressing book ever. I would not recommend this book to anyone. That's a bad <laughs> review. I accept that. But I think that they... I would suggest, not that they don't know what they're talking about, but that they just haven't read the right book. They're not in the same conversation. They're not having the right conversation. But there are other people who've reviewed the book who have read it, and they've clearly taken every single part of it in and given a, given a thorough review and I'm not just saying that they've you know this is people who've given it three four stars not just like the the really the really good reviews but people who have really thought about it and actually there was a review in a magazine called Now Then in Sheffield and it was 
I guess it was a three to four star review. It wasn't, there weren't any stars, but, but it wasn't a glowing review. It was kind of, this is good. Um, I like this book. I recommend it, but it has some problems. That was, that was the review of my book. And mm-hmm. I didn't agree with all of the points because I just kind of thought, well, I think you've kind of missed what I was trying to get across there. But, but you know, ultimately that's not their fault. <laughs> that's potentially my fault. It could be just one of those things. But the fact that they'd engage with the book in a really critical way in what was a very normally written review, there wasn't any kind of flouncy language or attempts to make it some kind of literary discourse. It was a review of my book, but they clearly engaged with the book. And to me, Hmm. that's what a good review is about. It's about... Absolutely, uh, but it's, it's still a reader's review, isn't it? But why is someone who's who's doing literary criticism? Why are they not a reader? What is it? What is no, it that I'm sets so, them but apart? But they're not being paid to do it. This, I think, this is this is what this is what was interesting to me from hearing this podcast and what I wanted to say is that it made me realise that I don't feel personally as a poet that I could review other poet other po- other poets <laughs> other poets' work because I would just be saying I would just be saying my own personal opinion about what I liked or didn't like, and I'd be drawing on my my own knowledge of poetry but I've never studied poetry and I don't have enough context I don't feel that I could be paid to be a poetry reviewer in my current phase that I am in my life and that was very interesting to me because I have in the past I've reviewed children's books and I felt perfectly qualified to do that because at the time I was a a primary school teacher so I was reading books and engaging with, with children all the time seeing their reaction um, and, um, you know, working, publicizing children's books as well. And I was interested in writing children's books. My mum was a, a, a children's author. So I felt that I could do that. And I was paid with books. I was never paid with money, <laughs> but that was fine. I loved that. Um, and, and even since I've had my, my little girl, I think, wow, I've got a whole new perspective on, on children's books now, you know, that I could bring to it. But I just don't feel that I could do it with poetry. I don't feel qualified at all. I think that's really interesting. It is interesting. And the whole notion of writers reviewing other writers' uh, books is is one that comes up quite a lot and is quite interesting. And you're right, some people, some authors get paid to review other authors' books. It's, they just do. It's kind of part of the, just one of the ways that they make money, I guess. Mm. Um, I've never been asked to do it for money, but I have reviewed some books. Um, and my my philosophy has been, I don't think that I will... I don't feel comfortable as an author myself with a book on a shelf reviewing um, another author's book badly, saying, I don't like this book, you should not buy this book. I don't feel like that's my position as a writer. On the other hand, I feel more than happy to tell people about books that I like. And we do, both of us do on this podcast. And like you, uh, with, with poetry, I don't feel like I'm more or less qualified than anyone else to review books. I suppose, I guess, having written one, and I'm, I, I might have to be able to provide some sort of insight into, I don't know, the way it's the way it's written or the, the structure or that kind of thing. But I haven't read every book in the world, and I'm not an expert in any genre whatsoever. My English degree only takes me so far, and um, and 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 therefore. I don't feel particularly more or less qualified than the next person. And I don't mean the next writer. I mean the next person, anyone who wants to review books. But I, I'm very, very much behind the idea that if you like something, tell people about it. Absolutely. So that's yeah. kind of the way I approach it. I don't, I, I don't feel that comfortable being paid to 
review books although if I get an offer I'd probably not turn it down um, <laughs> um, but I, I don't think it would stop me reviewing a book in a way that that was essentially me going this is great you should try this absolutely I think when I retire whenever that may be I want to I want to be become the foremost world expert on everything to do with poetry. I mean, I agree with you. I think there's something very appealing about being that bloke who wrote that sentence. I know. There's something very appealing about it. <laughs> Maybe but that's I- what it was. I was just upset that I, I, that, that I thought of something that he said was a cliche and I thought, come on, how could that be a cliche? It's got to be a cliche to the, most, the smallest number of people in the entire world. Yes. But it's something, there's something extremely appealing about knowing one subject absolutely inside out i don't think my brain works in that way i don't think i'm ever gonna have that but there is something really appealing about being that kind of that kind of guy absolutely or gal being the being the person that gets called in to comment on something absolutely ridiculously specific yes yeah that'd be great fantastic well we have we have covered a lot of ground tonight i feel like a leopard in a jungle who is, well, we'll never who is know. Particular. We'll never know how much ground they cover, will we? Unless they've got a collar on, one of those tracking collars. Yeah, and I don't you want to see them. I don't want to be the person who attaches that. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh dear. Did you have anything else you wanted to say this week, Ian? I did actually. I just wanted to, um, and I was going to do it at the start, but I got sidetracked. What well, didn't you really get sidetracked? You kind of steamed in with. Uh, your Hang on a date. second. We did. We did the podcast. That's what happened. Don't make out like I've done something wrong. Within ten, I'm going to listen back. Within ten seconds of us starting this <laughs> podcast, you said you that you're in the national newspaper. <sighs> I just wanted to um, just remind people, particularly people who have only started listening since we moved to five by five. Welcome, hello, bonsoir. Hello. Um, just to say that the the music, the intro music to the Right for Life podcast, which we do have comments from people about complimentary comments um, is by a band called Native and the Name, the lead singer, songwriter, violinist, guitarist is a guy called Joe, Joe Rose, and he's a friend of mine. And um, he is a very, very talented chap. And you can find the full version of does that song. Does he do song. all of that? He does all what sorts, yeah. And it's the, his, his brother plays bass and his sister plays keyboards and they all sing. It's a family affair. It's a cause. It's a, it's a proper cause set up. Indeed. Um, but you can you can find out more about Native and the Name. You can listen to the full version of that song with words and everything. On uh, You can buy it on iTunes and you can listen to it on Spotify and audio and all that kind of thing. Native and the Name. And the song itself is called Billy Bix Pit. The, that's the... Uh, just wanted to say that. It's a little bit of advertising. <laughs> no, it's, it's nice. Nice to give them a shout, eh? Because it's a great intro. Indeed. Oh, I Although like I will it. say that my um, my listener's question jingle, I think, is is also quite high quality. Well, I think he's adapting that for his new album. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. So um, we're done this week, aren't we, really? We are. If you want to get in touch, do get in touch. We're getting more and more people get in touch with us. We like those kinds of things. You can do so on Twitter. I'm at Ian Broom. You are at The Flying Poet. And uh, you can get in touch via uh, via email as well. You can, there's contact details on the page on by 5tv slash WFYL slash 112. Hmm. 
No, three. Three. So close. Um, and uh, and that's it. Did you just go? I did. And do you know what? I just that I thought, uh oh, we've gone, and we're just about to finish. But I'm actually still here, which is fantastic. So. What happened? Because my my Skype call's gone back to the start. Yeah, so's mine. But it's still recording. I know it's really weird. And there was a noise. Uh, I couldn't hear you while you were doing the the right for life blog bit. It was brilliant. Oh, I'm so sorry I missed it. But anyway, that's it. Yep. Thank you. See you next week. And go for real now. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.